Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We continue our exploration of Plutarch's lives, the Greek, Egypts, and the Roman, Tiberius Gracchus. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope for interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics, to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're continuing our series based on Plutarch's lives of the noble Grecians and Romans. Today's subjects are the Spartan King Aegis and the Roman Tiberius Gracchus. As before, Plutarch picks a Greek and a Roman to compare, not just for leadership, but for moral and civic virtue as well. Plutarch was a Greek writing at the time of the Julio-Claudian emperors, when the forms of the Roman Republic were still somewhat respected, a matter of no little importance when we end up talking about the Gracchi in particular. Uh, Tom, you're going to talk to us about uh, King Aegis, about whom I know nothing. So uh, what, what can you tell us? Well, I did know nothing about him until... Uh, I researched for this podcast, Richard, uh, and I learned he was uh, King Aegis IV, lived from 265 B.C. to 241 B.C., relatively short life. He was the uh, 25th king of the Uri Pondid dynasty of Sparta, and it's a quick digression. Sparta had dual monarchy, so um, it was one of the few major states to have this form of government, which meant it had two kings from two separate dynastic families. Sometimes they got along, sometimes not so well. Um, and then the, the, the short rule of Aegis, we saw both. Uh, posterity, however, has reckoned him an idealistic monarch, monarch but perhaps impractical, impracticable. Uh, he came to the throne in 245 BC, around the age of 20, and only reigned for four years. His reign was, uh, came about from a domestic crisis, uh, but Sparta at the end of the time, uh, at the time of his accession, rather. Uh, we're going to talk about this issue, which, frankly, I really had not focused on very much, and it's land reform uh, in uh, the next couple of podcasts. It's a, it's a key component of the leaders we're going to discuss. And with regard to Sparta, um, due to the influx of wealth and luxury, the Spartan way of life degenerated away from ancient simplicity and severity of manners. But now that I said that... Uh, Perhaps, you know, that's simply looking back to the 1950s with um, Leave it the Beaver, uh, the equivalent for us. Nevertheless, um, there was an extreme inequality in the distribution of wealth. Originally, or rather at this time, there were fewer than 700 families of true Spartan stock remaining. And in consequence of uh, certain innovations introduced, um, every uh, previously every Spartan head of family received an equal portion of land, but that was changed, and the landed 
property passed into the hands of a very few individuals so that fewer than 100 Spartan families held estates, while the poor were greatly burdened with debt. For Sparta, that had the additional consequence of uh, degenerating or, or depleting the Spartan army and uh, their, their famous Spartan army. So Aegis, uh, from his earliest, earliest youth, had shown, shown attachment to the ancient Spartan discipline, and he wanted to reform these abuses and to reestablish the institutions of Lycurgus, who I think uh, we have touched upon in this series. To that end, he proposed the abolition of all debts and partitions of new land. As a part of his uh, plan, he was going to give landed estates to the Perikioi, uh, who were capable of bearing arms, and to certain medic women who had a, quote, beautiful appearance and were in the prime of their life, end quote. That sounds like childbearing uh, <laughs> moms to me. Um, but his, his schemes uh, were warmly received, as you might guess, by the unlanded class or the poorer classes and young men, but strenuously opposed by the wealthy. And that's also a theme we're going to touch upon throughout these next couple of podcasts. He uh, was able to get, get influ- gain some influence because he had uh, an uncle and a couple of other close uh, friends uh, who helped this effort, and one included a gentleman named Lysander, uh, not to be confused with the uh, descent of the descendant of the victor of Acapostomani, uh Lysander. Nevertheless, he arranged for this Lysander to be one of six ephors who were sort of a board of directors, if I can call them that, um, and he laid his plans before the Spartan Senate. He proposed that Spartan territory be divided into two portions one consisting of 4,500 equal lots to be divided among the Spartans, whose ranks were to be filled um, with the admission of the most respectable perikioi and resident aliens, and then an additional 15,000 lots to be uh, divided amongst the remaining perikioi. I think it's important to remember, Richard, that the helots or slaves had been freed by this time, so you had a lot of non-Spartans in this Perikioi, which also, I think, uh, uh, bubbled up some trouble as well. Um, eventually, um, he just was able to get this measure passed, but the co-monarch, Aegis, uh, which was headed by Leonidas II, the Agiad co-monarch, uh, really uh, opposed this. And he really liked the luxury that uh, Spartan had uh, come to know. And so um, Aegis decided to rid himself of Leonidas, and he um, did so. Leonidas was deposed, and then Aegis, um, Leon, uh, Leonidas' son-in-law, Climabrotus, on that throne. Uh, soon afterwards, uh, the E-4s, uh, the ruling council, became opposed to Aegis and looked to restore Leonidas, and they brought uh, certain legal actions uh, to do so. Uh, there was a series of uh, wars. Spartan was not the power that it had once been. Nevertheless, it was still a formidable formidable foe. And excuse me, Aegis was sent out on campaign. And on one of those campaigns, while he was gone, the oligarchs, uh, the e succeeded in restoring Leonidas to power uh, 
in canceling the form, reforms that Aegis had implemented. In 241 BC, Aegis was betrayed by some friends and thrown into prison. Uh, Leonidas immediately came with a band of mercenaries and um, entered the prison, and Aegis was executed. He uh, told his executioners, who were alleged to have moved to tears, weep not for me, suffering as I do unjustly. I am happier, I am in a happier case than my murderers. His mother and grandmother were also uh, put to death at this time. Uh, interestingly, uh, many writers consider him too weak and good natured, a ruler to cope with the problems which uh, confronted him. And he was characterized with a youthful blend of modesty, royal dignity, and a sincer sincerity of purpose. Um, and he became a very attractive figure in the whole of Spartan life. And his life and death caught the imagination of several ancient writers, uh, including uh, Plutarch. So um, he did live a short life, Richard. Uh, and uh, the more I read and reread his life, and then the next one I'm going to ask you to go over, Tiberius Gracchus, he, he seemed to be a great lead into Tiberius Gracchus. So perhaps you could uh, tell us a little bit about the, the first Gracchus, Gracchi brother, and uh, where uh, he fits in the Roman history. Uh, sure. And uh, first of all, we're going to have to do a little background um, on, on the state of the Roman Republic at the time. But it is interesting uh, how dangerous the uh, land reform can be. Um, Tiberius Gracchus was one of the grandchildren of Scipio Africanus through his daughter Cornelia, who was probably one of the most famous matrons in Roman history. Her other surviving child, Sempronia, was married to Scipio the Younger, also known as Scipio Aemilianus, who became one of the uh, political opponents to her other sons. Um, in 146 BC, when Scipio Aemilianus sacked Carthage and Lucius Mummius sacked Corinth, uh, in both cases, the cities were raised and the surviving population was enslaved. And the Roman Senate then annexed as provinces, Greece and North Africa, a distinct chain from the prior custom of ruling indirectly through local quasi-independent figures. Uh, but the flood of wealth from looting of both cities, as well as from the former Carthaginian silver mines in Spain, and the influence of large numbers of slaves to Italy profoundly upset the old balance of power in Rome between the Senate, the people, and the equestrian order. As a sideline, uh, Scipio's Emilianus's natural father brought a thousand high-status Greek hostages to Rome, which changed the education and cultural background of the elite classes. And among them was the historian Polybius, whose analysis of the Roman government at the time is one of our, our better sources for the structure and operation of the various interest groups. In particular, Polybius felt the Romans had achieved the perfect balance among the three Aristotelian forms of government. The monarchical element was provided by the consuls, and during emergencies, a dictator, whose power was constrained by the fact that, first of all, there were two of them, and second, that their term was limited to one year. The oligarchic element was provided by the Senate, originally 100 men appointed by Romulus, but by this time, about 300 men drawn from the richest and most powerful families in Rome. Many of them had already served as magistrates or consuls, and generally the consuls would not initiate a policy without the deliberative input of the Senate. The democratic element was provided by the assembly, 
And at this time, there are actually three principal assemblies. The Centuriate Assembly, which elected senior magistrates. The Tribal Assembly, which elected junior magistrates, passed laws and rendered legal judgments. And the Plebeian Assembly, whose powers overlapped the Tribal Assembly, but they also elected the tribunes, and it was open only to men of plebeian birth. I didn't really appreciate how powerful the assemblies were. Only an assembly could pass a law or pass capital sentence on a Roman citizen. And although a verdict could be appealed to an assembly, there's no appeal from a verdict of the assembly. Uh, Mike Duncan, whose excellent book, The Storm Before the Storm, I'm indebted to for the prior summary, argues the system was already in disrepair at the end of the Punic Wars, since the Senate had been able to ensure that subservient clients had been elected consuls and tribunes, rendering the consuls and assemblies no longer a check on the Senate, but rather an extension of it. Uh, in my opinion, one of the great strengths of the Roman system was the, what they called the cursus honorum, which traditionally trained would-be consuls step by step. First of all, you served as a quester in your late 20s, and 10 were appointed each year, where you learned finance, accounting, and record keeping. Uh, then there were the eight aisles, of which there were four each year, who were responsible for overseeing public works and games. And they often took on enormous debt to finance their projects, which they would pay back from wealth derived from subsequent political success. Uh, the lower rung of senior magistrates was the praetor, with four elected each year. And they basically held sovereign power when the consuls were not there. And finally, there were the two consuls, traditionally at least 40 years old. Uh, many, if not most, of the senators had served in at least some of these uh, capacities in their youth. Another concept worth mentioning is the mos maiorum, which means way of the elders. And it constituted the body of unwritten rules, traditions, mutual expectations and obligations, and respect for traditional roles that were mutually accepted as binding. And Duncan argues that it's the breakdown of the most maiorum that is most responsible for some of the uh, violence we'll be discussing shortly. Um, so as described, Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus was grandson of Scipio Africanus. He was born in 163 or 162 BC. Military career started as military tribune to his brother-in-law, Scipio Aemilianus, in the siege of Carthage in 146. And he became known for bravery and discipline and was the first to scale the walls of Carthage, a signal honor. An important aside, um, at this point, Scipio was too young to serve as consul, and he'd never held office higher than Quester, both of which should have disqualified him for the job. However, the assembly, by a simple majority vote, waived the rules with respect to Scipio. They didn't change the rules, they just waived them with respect to him, and elected him consul in charge of the Carthage campaign. And this, this was a very significant breach of the most maiorum, which shows that things were breaking down well before the appearance of the Gracchi on the scene. In 137 BC, Tiberius was appointed quester to the consul Mancinus during the Numantine Wars in Spain, and Mancinus bungled it so badly, some 20,000 Roman soldiers were surrounded and in danger of being massacred. Uh, the Numantines refused to negotiate with anyone but Tiberius Gracchus, based in large part on the honorable conduct of his father in Spain some years before. The Romans were allowed to leave, but they had to give up all their loot to the Numantines. Tiberius requested the Numantines return his account ledgers so that he could justify his conduct, conduct, and they threw a banquet for him, gave him his ledgers, and offered him the pick of the loot. 
He accepted only some frankincense for religious sacrifice. On their return to Rome, Tiberius was vilified by the Senate for negotiating the treaty, since it was regarded as an affront to the honor of Rome. But he has saved further repercussions by the families of the 20,000 troops whose lives he'd saved. Mancinus was sent back in chains to the Numantines, who refused to accept him as a prisoner, and the Senate refused to ratify the treaty, so the war sputtered on for a while. On his return to Rome, Tiberius devoted himself to the cause of land reform and especially the redistribution of public lands that had been illegally appropriated by senators and other wealthy and powerful people. The conquests of Spain, Greece, and North Africa in short order had brought a previously unimaginable amount of wealth pouring into Rome, or at least the coffers of its already wealthiest citizens. At the same time, service in the legions had transitioned from being a seasonal obligation to a multi-year commitment. In addition, soldiers at the time were charged for their food and equipment, and many of them were financially destitute at the end of their military service. They returned to find their small farms in disrepair, and many were forced to sell them to the wealthy owners of large estates. Sometimes they were allowed to continue to act as tenant farmers or sharecroppers, but often the owners of the large estates preferred to use the new bounty of slaves to work the land, leaving the former owners landless and without any economic prospects. The tribunes, who'd been co-opted by the Senate and the wealthy, seemed to have returned to their senses and their role as protectors of the plebeians. And in 151 and 138, the consuls were aggressively trying to conscript citizens to serve in the Spanish wars, and the tribunes placed the consuls under arrest until they backed off. Although they had every legal right to do this, the Senate was appalled at the challenge to their authority. In 139, the tribunes had passed a law requiring secret ballots in elections, which was later extended to judicial assemblies. And this was a direct attack on the patron-client relationship, and the patron could no longer be sure that his client was following his instructions. In addition to prosecuting the Spanish wars, the assembly wanted to appoint, oh, I'm sorry, in order to prosecute the Spanish wars, the assembly wanted to appoint Scipio Emilianus consul again, but there was a law in place that prohibited a man from serving as consul more than once. As before, the assembly simply voted to exempt Scipio from the law and elected him consul again in 134 BC. Shortly thereafter, Tiberius was elected tribune and brought a land reform bill directly to the assembly without consulting with the Senate first, as was traditional. As initially proposed, the Lex Impronia Agraria would compensate those who had illegally seized public lands. The lands recovered would be divided into magical plots and redistributed to landless citizens with a prohibition that the new plots could not be broken up and sold. The powerful senators, led by Tiberius's father-in-law, Apius Claudius Pulcher, actually backed the laws for, for reasons which remain obscure, but most of the Senate opposed them. Principle that Claudius Pulcher uh, backed it, but it could have also been a political calculation that the new landowners would become clients of his own political faction. Dispossessed landowners flooded into Rome for the vote, and Tiberius gave an impassioned speech um, and prepared to get the law passed by an overwhelming majority. However, in the excessive greed, the other members of the Senate and nobles persuaded one of his fellow tribunes, Marcus Octavius, to veto the reading of the bill, which meant there could be no vote on the legislation. In response, Tiberius vetoed every other piece of public business, locked the state treasury with his personal seal. Octavius would not relent in complete defiance of tradition. Uh, normally, a, a tribune would veto an action uh, to register his, his displeasure, but would then uh, allow the legislation to move forward. 
Tiberius then moved to depose Octavius's tribune. Octavius didn't, did not veto this vote, and although Tiberius gave him numerous chances during the counting of the vote to relent, he would not. He was deposed and was able to escape the mob. So the Lex Agraria was now passed, and a commission of three was appointed to redistribute the lands. But the Senate, led by Publius Scipio Nasica, Pontifex Maximus, who incidentally held a large amount of public land illegally, refused to fund the work of the commission. About the same time, King Attalus of Pergamum died and willed his entire kingdom and royal treasury to the people of Rome. Tiberius seized on this language to say that the assembly would have power over the new province and the royal treasury. The Senate went apoplectic about this, as this was totally against all customary usage. They denounced Tiberius as trying to make himself a tyrannical despot. Shortly afterward, Tiberius announced he would run for re-election. Although not technically forbidden, it was unprecedented and gave his enemies more cause to believe he intended to become a king. Voting was tumultuous as supporters of Tiberius attempted to physically prevent his opponents from voting. Uh, Nasica and his followers armed themselves with table legs and other bludgeons because no weapons were allowed to be carried inside the city limits. And they proceeded to beat Tiberius and at least 300 of his suborders to death in the forum. Bodies were thrown in the Tiber and as a, a deliberate insult. And as tribune, Tiberius was sacrosanct, and for the Pontifex Maximus to have committed such an act of sacrilege must have been truly shocking to the Romans. The Senate then gave the new consuls power to pass capital sentences on those who had supported Tiberius, and the populace was outraged, especially when the only people targeted and killed were lower class, and the members of the Senate were never called to account. The Senate hastily sent Nasica abroad to Pergamum, where he died. Um, so, Tom, all in all, it's a pretty good mess. It certainly is, Richard. There was a couple of points I wanted to, to maybe pick up on. The first was why I think Tiberius saw the need for land reform. Roman landowners were subject to military service, and that military service was for a campaign, not a season. So that uh, typically in Spain, a campaign could last multiple years. So that meant men were away from their farms for multiple years, or potentially. And right. uh, that left the women and children trying to, to do the farm work. Oftentimes, as you noted, these farms would uh, uh, fall into disarray and could not support themselves and would be purchased by the uh, one of my favorite terms in all history, the latifunda, um, yeah. the large landowners. And that had a couple of impacts or effects. One is it decreased the potential pool of army or of service members because you had to be a landowner. Number two, uh, it took away from the tax base. So you had a shrinking number of Romans eligible for service. You had a shrinking tax base because of this anomaly, um, well, perhaps not even an anomaly. But the required military service required the men to be away from their farms. So um, the land reform, I thought, if we can deign or, or uh, understand why Tiberius saw this as so critical, uh, that was a real uh, insight for me that uh, I think he saw this as a, as a way to solve a couple of different problems facing Rome at that time. 
I've studied this era fairly extensively, but I've always focused on the much bigger picture and, of course, moving from a republic uh, to a dictatorship under the Caesars. And um, the Gracchus brothers, starting with Tiberius, uh, we'll get to Gaius in our next episode, were really the first that seemed to be able to uh, mobilize the assembly, the plebs, plebeians, uh, who uh, made up the assembly. And I really thought they had used the assembly as a mob to try to intimidate the Senate, but I'm not sure that's a fair assessment any longer. I think that that may have been the end result, but I'm not sure Tiberius Gracchus really intended uh, to, to use that power in a nefarious manner. The conservatives of the Roman Senate uh, apparently could had not studied history, so they were condemned to repeat it. Um, at least uh, Plutarch hadn't come along to educate them as yet. And clearly the Senate was trying to hold on to something that, if it ever existed, it didn't exist anymore. And all they had now was uh, huge land holdings and wealth that they were trying to concentrate. Uh, the other thing that, and you touched on when you began your history of uh, Tiberius Gracchus, was the, um, the, the familial family uh, uh, influence here, going all the way back to Scipio Africanus, who we talked about in an uh, earlier episode. And I was struck by uh, Tiberius as a youth being allowed to be the first one to, to scale the walls of Carthage. Uh, I would like to just remind people that uh, the Third Punic War ended the life of Carthage as the Romans decided they could not have Carthage around at all and destroyed the city, put all the uh, Carthaginians into slavery, and actually sowed salt into the fields of Carthage so that they could never uh, bloom uh, uh, grain and fruit again. Um, but that was still important for Tiberius to have done that, and his military achievement and his family connections, I think, led him uh, to be in the position uh, to do this land reform. The um, maybe I should just stop and maybe uh, you gave us a great recitation. But what what do you really think about Tiberius Gracchus now, Richard? I think it was very interesting. I think you're, you're one of the motives that the senators who did back Tiberius Gracchus in the land reform had was definitely to increase the pool of Roman citizens eligible to serve as soldiers because they were increasingly conscripting from a smaller and smaller group who resented it more and more. Um, and it was, it was causing a great deal of difficulty. As I mentioned twice, the tribunes had uh, had intervened to pro prohibit the consuls from uh, conscripting soldiers. Actually, one of the other things that Scipio Emilianus did when he went back to Spain was he had used some of his wealth to raise basically a private legion. And to me, the most dangerous person in this whole period was Emilianus because he's the one that really flouted all the reforms of um, or, or all the traditions of the most Maiorum when he became consul too young and too inexperienced, uh, when he was reelected against the law, and then when he raised his own private army, all, all of which subsequent uh, would-be tyrants uh, followed. But I'm not convinced that Gracchus wasn't moved mainly by the plight of the soldiers. Uh, certainly his speeches 
focus on that. And whether that was just for rhetorical purposes, whether he was sincere, I don't know. But but he certainly felt that the the common soldier was getting a really raw deal, and and I think that was one of his major motives. Um, whether the the senators also had the political the fact that these people would become their clients, I think is is probably a good point. So the um, the other thing, Richard, was the the role of the uh, plebeians um, as maybe if we come forward a few hundred couple of centuries into the French Revolution, I really found that the I, what I had thought was the Roman mob equating to the Parisian mob during the French Revolution, I think there were two very different um, bodies, <laughs> if I can use that word. And I really got the sense of, of true grievances from the Roman plebeians it, sort of devolving down into political violence um, Perhaps this was preordained, perhaps not, but certainly different than the Parisian mob, who I think uh, almost immediately came to violence and really uh, had no part in a political process. Would that be consistent with what you've seen, or do you really see things a little bit different way? No, I think that that's very true. And I, um, it's not clear to me what motivated Gracchus to take some of the more extreme measures that he did, which uh, ultimately drove the Senate against him. I think he may have just been in a hurry and he was ambitious, um, but certainly he began to take some, you know, the, the initial uh, approach with the land reform um, he had actually brought it before some of the senators informally and realized that there was not going to be majority support for it, which is why he broke tradition and brought it directly to the plebs. But as I noted, the assembly was the only one who could pass the law anyway. So um, it was more a matter of uh, the Senate was affronted by not being consulted about it. Um, but then when he moved to depose his fellow tribune, I think that was kind of uh, a different matter altogether. Um, and, and that's where they, they began to regard him as a would-be dictator and extraordinarily dangerous. Um, one of one of the writers who I looked at um, thinks that if Scipio Emilianus had been back in Rome, he would have been able to moderate the dispute and it never would have descended into violence. I'm, I'm not sure that's correct, but uh, anyway, I, th- I think you know, this, this may just be an instance of he lost his temper. It was, uh, I think, Plutarch um, of these two gentlemen, uh, Tiberius Gracchus and, and Agus. Agus. Uh, Plutarch does have great ad- admiration for both. But um, uh, perhaps uh, I could ask you, were there any leadership lessons that you really thought uh, are applicable today? You, you seem to really, uh, in your last few remarks, uh, hone in on Tiberius. But did, did anything I say on uh, Agus or Agus? Really strike you as something that a uh, a leader could look at and perhaps emulate today. Well, I think both of these uh, both of these cases indicate the importance of uh, constituencies and the need to build uh, constituencies for your for your programs. Um, and in in both cases, they had some support 
but then they had enough opposition that they then had to act in Aegis's case to depose his fellow king and then uh, Gracchus to depose his fellow tribune um, that ultimately I think set them up for, for more trouble. Um, certainly there are times well, I certainly, you, you uh, need to... Uh, well, I certainly agree with your point on the constituency. And I guess the thing that struck me in sort of your thoughts, Richards, was that uh, Tiberius really tested this uh, potential land reform out uh, in the Senate and, and saw that uh, that was he was not going to have support. So we went the more radical route. And, and I think I agree with you that until he deposed his um, fellow tribune, or that, at least that seems to be a turning point where the Senate became uh, much more concerned about him to the point where uh, violence was probably an, an inevitable end. Um, but I, uh, I guess um, both Aegis and Tiberius Gracchus came from privilege, came from wealthy families. Uh, they saw a problem, uh, whether that was a class problem through a class, class lens. Uh, they probably didn't have as much racial issues then, but they saw a problem that uh, they came up with a radical solution for. And that was land reform. And I thought uh, both men were, were heroic in terms of trying to do something about land reform, even if at the end of the day uh, they were defeated, but that um, Tiberius used his uh, education, his upbringing, his familial connections to try to pass something that certainly he believed was not for his own personal gain, but for the uh, the benefit of the Roman people and of, of greater Rome. And uh, my suspicion is Aegis felt the same way about land reform in Spartan. Well, and I, I guess the other lesson for me in these is the um, some problems are really intractable. Um, when one side abandons the traditional norms of respect and civility, um, it often leaves the other side desperate. And um, in this case, you know, it, it forced the Tiberius to, to take some steps. He would not, I, I think he would not have otherwise taken. But, you know, the, the Senate has a great deal of the blame here for the, their utter corruption and greed and their refusal to even consider um, the problems of their fellow citizens. And, you know, whether you want to draw lessons to today or not, uh, I'll leave it up to you. Well, I have to say this was the well, first I episode been that I really felt like uh, encapsulated the last uh, couple of years that we've gone through. I hope it's not leading to the same place, but we see that yeah. sort of uh, political upheaval and uh, breaking of norms as well. Yeah, I definitely do. And uh, I think our next episode, uh, we're going to see some more of it. So I hope our listeners will tune in for our next episode eight. But for now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox saying goodbye for 12 o'clock. Bye. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. I hope you will join us again next week where we take up the Greek Pericles and the Roman Fabius Maximus in episode three of our series on Plutarch's Lives. This series on Plutarch's Lives on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.